How or from what do you build a country? If we were to put a date on when the Republic of Turkey was established, we would likely choose October 29th, 1923, when the Republic was officially proclaimed in the new capital of Ankara. This transcontinental country, straddling the divide between Europe and Asia, was not born from a cultural vacuum. Turkey's foundations, both geographical and cultural, belong to the Ottoman Empire. A country's culture is the face it turns out to the world, and the culture of Turkey is rich and vibrant, as much as it is controversial in the global political arena. In 2022, the European branch of the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans and Intersex Association ranked Turkey as its second lowest country for LGBTQ plus rights citing the stark challenges faced by gender and sexuality diverse citizens. Marriage equality is a far-off dream for Turkey, as is bodily autonomy for intersex individuals or gender self-determination for transgender and non-binary residents of the country. But no country is established with its cultural values and legal system emerging from a vacuum. We would therefore assume that the conservative nature of Turkey is a product, in part, of its predecessors. But what do we know of the cultural values and gendered and sexual practices of the Ottoman Empire? What can scholars of this field teach us, for example, about the three gender social systems of the Ottoman people, or the masculine aesthetics once condoned amongst the women of these cultures? How does one trace the gendered and sexual undercurrents that pass from Ottomans to Turks? Welcome to episode 22 of Slash Queer. You're here with me, your host, Georgie Williams. In our last episode, we departed from Malta with sights set on heading across the Mediterranean for our next story. If you were listening to us back in episodes 16 and 17 in Ireland, you may recall our conversations with Tony Walsh, the gay godfather of Ireland. As luck would have it, Tony is now settled in Antalya, Turkey, and was more than happy to host whilst we worked on this episode. It was through Tony that I began to make connections within the LGBTQ+ community of Antalya. Many of the connections I made were hesitant to talk on record about their experiences of being gender and sexuality diverse in Turkey. But they reported a plethora of different experiences of discrimination and prejudice, ranging from street harassment to being refused employment on the grounds of an HIV positive blood test. It became evident early on into our time in Antalya that investigating stories of Turkey's gender and sexuality diversity would require more than a few conversations with locals. Doing the necessary research to better understand the history of Turkey seemed the next logical step. Although homosexual activity has been legal in Turkey since 1858, 
Heavy discrimination against LGBTQ plus identifying individuals perseveres here. The findings of a 2015 poll stated that only 27% of Turkish citizens supported same-sex marriage. The progression of human rights movements isn't always linear, and that early legalization of homosexuality in 1858 begs the question, what was so different about Turkey in the 1800s? The answer is that it wasn't Turkey. What existed in 1858 was the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was one of the greatest empires in history. An empire that controlled large swathes of Southeast Europe, Western Asia, and Northern Africa between the 14th and early 20th centuries. The cultural legacy of the Ottoman Empire is vast, known not only for its literature, but also for their miniature paintings, which captured the sexual diversity in the empire, as well as the ever-changing political and socio-cultural scenes across the empire. A great deal of change happened within the time frame of the Ottoman Empire, notably the industrialization of the globe and the spread of Western imperialism. Western imperialism is the term used to describe when European nations, mostly in the 1800s, acquired great wealth and power through slavery, forced labor, and exploitation of invaded lands. Although many practices and values from Western imperialism were resisted by the Ottomans, following the fall of the empire in 1922, the social norms and practices of modern-day Turkey absorbed many of the Western values of the 1800s and 1900s particularly around gender roles and norms, and sexuality. And as we have discovered multiple times throughout the course of this project, the impact of these imported Western values varies greatly. Regardless of how deeply we dove into the literature around this subject, the questions we had about how Ottoman values did or did not become Turkish values remained. A crucial element for this project is that the voices who speak on the subjects at hand are the voices to whom these histories belong. Naturally, when the Slash Queer project tackles matters for which no first-hand witnesses remain, our methodology requires us to look next to those both belonging to what remains of a culture and or those who have dedicated themselves to researching or preserving these histories. In our quest to put the right voice in the center of this conversation, several months of searching and referrals led us to an academic whose speciality in the female homoeroticisms of Ottoman and Turkish women very much afforded them a place at the center of this conversation. I am very happy to let Dr. Saritash lead us through this fascinating and complex subject. My name is Eski. I am from Ankara University. I am a research assistant here in Turkey. My research is focused on uh, late 19th, early 20th century sexuality and gender relations, and also like mid 20th century women's movement. I have like two parallel but separated research areas. 
Brilliant. Well, I've been so excited to do this interview um, because I think your work is fascinating. So I'm going to bring up the questions I've got for you today. To start, um, I wanted to touch on that research by asking, um, you've previously written on the subject of female homoeroticism in the late Ottoman and Turkish narratives. Um, what did that homoeroticism look like and what historically and culturally appropriate language would we use to describe it? Well, yeah, maybe I should first note that I've studied narratives on female uh, homoeroticism, but the texts I've studied were all written by men, which is something, I guess, uh, which which is a challenge that many of us face <laughs> who try to like study female homoeroticism. I don't think it's a rare problem. But I've noticed an increase in the number of texts dealing with uh, female homoerotic relations at the turn of the century. These were like, these texts were different in, in different genres. Like there are medical texts and literary ones and advice books and political commentary, popular history, and also like uh, plays and short stories and novellas. So that kind of intrigued me, like why why all of a sudden that became so problematic for modern Turkish intellectuals at the turn of the century. And yeah, this is a question that I tried to answer by looking into the tensions generated by uh, the idea of a companionate marriage and romantic, heterosexual romantic love. I thought that it had something to do with it. I think it was a reflection of male anxieties about that. This was my reading uh, of these texts, or this is my reading of these texts. But to start with the second part of your question is that the, the culturally appropriate language is also challenging, I think, which is always tricky, of course, when it comes to erotic lives and experiences, as well as gendered expressions and identifications, embodiments, quote-unquote, before hom homosexuality, right? Like before these clinical or sexological terms emerged and popularized and translated and whatsoever. So, of course, the fact that we are talking about a, like a non-Western geography complicates this question, I think, a little further. So there were Ottoman Turkish, well, they were not really Turkish, but they were used in Ottoman Turkish. They were labels used to describe love, eroticism and sexual relations sexual encounters between women, and two of them actually come from Arabic. This is why I say not Turkish. The Saha, Sahaka, Musaika, Sihak, and Zurefa. And the other one uh, is more Turkish, Sevici. So, yeah, looking at the cultural circulation of these two Arabic-derived terms is, I think, interesting. The... The, these musahika, sihak, sehaka, they're all derived from the same root, which um, means to grind, um, to pound. And it's this, this, this sexual act is actually what is um, meant here. So the emphasis is not really on an attitude, a style or emotions or desires or any kind of identification, but mostly on the sexual act itself. So... Of course, Arabic-speaking scholars worked on uh, these terms and 
Um, for instance, Somar Habib knows, notes that it is interesting to see how grinding actually provides a cross-cultural, uh, cross-temporal also identification for female homoeroticism as because it's used in contemporary like slang as well. Uh, so yeah, there is this association with the, the act itself uh, that is still going on and we do not really, it's really hard to say like the genealogy of these terms, like the current slang and stuff, it's really hard to trace them back. Maybe it's just the common knowledge, it, it becomes common knowledge or common usage at some point. And well, yeah, this is one of the terms and um, and Samar Habib, but also other uh, scholars such as Sahara Mar and Fetwa uh, Malte Douglas also, they've written about this text by Ahmed Al-Tifashi. Uh, it's a 13th century treatise, uh, the name Nusat Al-Albab. Well, I'll, uh, my Arabic is horrible, but Nusat Al-Albab Fimal La Yujat Fikitab. And so here Tufashi talks about a subculture of women who loved women. And he says they call themselves Zurefa. So this time it indicates a way of life, an attitude, a style. So it's different from Sahaka in that sense, right? Mm -hmm. And what is interesting is that um, the in this treatise, in this 13th century treatise, Zurefa are... They're portrayed as a community of elegant women. The the word zarif, zurefa means the elegance. So these women are like they enjoy beautiful, intoxicating smells and perfumes and luxurious food and extravagant furniture and accessories. So they seem to symbolize some kind of excessive indulgence in in worldly pleasure pleasures and like elegance and you know that and they're having parties at home where they, where they invite others other uh, elegant women and there is not much of an indication about their gender expression like not really an implication of masculinity it seems to be a very feminine subculture or like yeah these these uh extravagancies are associated with some kind of feminine indulgence or at least in their 19th 20th century uh, Ottoman Turkish adaptations so to speak because it's interesting that I've talked about in the beginning that there are texts about women loving women there is an increase of text and some of them are actually talking about this subculture with the same name Zurefa, and very similar characteristics like, for instance, perfumes, intoxicating perfumes. They're very, they smell, they, they wear really strong uh, lavender smell, for instance. Or these parties where they invite others and they always have changis and dance to, and dance to music and stuff. So it seems that this 13th century figure somehow circulated through the Middle Eastern geography through centuries and it was in the cultural repertoire of Turkish male intellectuals in the, at the turn of the century and when they decided to talk about female homoeroticism 
which is something I, as I said, is also like a reflection of their anxieties about a, a romantic love and like heterosexual romantic love and uh, companionate marriage. They kind of founded in their cultural repertoire this figure. So in the earlier narratives, you have these women who are, again, they are not really masculine. And for instance, it is significant to note that these women, the Zurafa or Sevici, which is, which is also a, it's a Turkish word that is the one who caresses, the one who loves and likes, you can translate it like that. But also it has an uh, it has a connotation of like kind of the amateur, right? Also amateurs, you know, etymological. They they have similar etymological stories, like with the amateur and civici. So you can use it for an amateur of anything. But uh, of course, the the association with this amateur of love and also like the one who caresses is, I think, it also has has a reference to the sexual acts as well. This is this is also a common term used in the uh, Ottoman Turkish texts. So in the earlier ones you really do not you you really see like how women are seduced by other women. Especially younger girls are seduced by older women and they kind of resemble to them. So I think it's a reflection of how love and infatuation is kind of understood within the framework of this like-seek-like uh, doctrine. Like when you like someone, you kind of resemble to them or you seek someone who, who resembles to yourself. So it's not like opposites attract each other in the classical heteronormative sense of love and attraction. But on the contrary, like, you're attracted to someone who's like you. So you kind of have this, you know, this kind of framework in the earlier narratives on female homoeroticism. So like when a girl is seduced by an older Zurefa, she kind of starts to look like her and behave like her. She adopts this style, this subcultural style, and she starts resembling. But... As the as twenty like into twentieth century, to speak, um, this figure starts to transform. This is a very short span of time, so the, it's really hard to pinpoint the transformation. Right, we're not talking about even not even a century or less than fifty years, but a, a more masculine figure starts to emerge, and this time, like. This masculine figure is rarely called Isurefa. She's usually called Sevici. Yeah, the, that kind of resembles to the amateur etymologically. Well, like one thing that I find interesting is that so the Zurefa know each other from the white dresses and especially neckties they wear on the streets. This is the according to these popular narratives of this subculture of women. So, and there is this saying in Turkish, which is thought to be related to this subculture. Uh, it is Zurefa'nın düşkünü beyaz giyer kış günü, which is the one who's fond of Zurefa wears white during 
during winter. So like obviously you do you do not wear something white during winter. You would wear white uh, dark clothes, but if you're fond of the Zurafa, you wear white. We don't know if it's really about the subculture, because also like you know wearing white is always an indication of this elegance, right? Like cleanliness and like especially when it was hard to clean clothes back then. Well, anyway, yeah, but then into 20th century, 20, 1920s, and so you start the emergence of a more masculine figure. And this time, this white necktie turns into kind of a cravat, into like a, a more masculine kind of accessory, which is funny, I think. <laughs> this is a transformation, as I said, that happened like in less than... 50 years or something like that. And what caused it? Of course, the translation of the sexological terms and the sexological literature, especially by the Ottoman Turkish neuropsychiatrists, started to translate. I mean, Kraft Ebing uh, himself is translated in 1940s, like Psychopathia Sexualis is translated in 1940s, but in 19. 10 in 1900s, they were using it in their books, Kraft Abing's terminology. So they were trying to translate like homosexual and sophist and, and all these terms. So this kind of thinking of the inward, right? Like the gender identity and sexual uh, orientation being kind of uh, like there was a paradigmatic shift in terms of that, right? Yeah, this I will talk about later maybe, but uh, I can just, you know, it will suffice to say that this figure of the Seviji started to become like more masculine into 20th century. But of course, these are like texts, published written texts. We do not know how much they influence the popular knowledge or the everyday perceptions. It's really hard to know that. And I'm really, I wish there were more popular sources. And maybe over time, like with uh, more, more historical research, we will have some more popular sources and maybe even sources by women themselves, which will change a lot, hopefully, at some point. Wow. Wow. No, I... That is fascinating, and and I mean, I have so many questions, but I love that you you've mentioned the fact that um, yeah, these are these are narratives that are we only hear through a male voice as well, um, yeah. and that does bring me on to my next question. I know you mentioned kind of male anxieties around some of these relationships between women, um, and I wanted to ask what were the cultural attitudes around these these romantic and sexual relationships between any same-sex couples? Yeah, I mean, but the, it's re, as I said, it's really, really hard to say the everyday encounters and what, like, what these women experienced, right? We have almost no evidence right now. But we can talk about different narratives and how they transformed at the turn of the century. This is something that was obvious, especially, of course, male homoeroticism, perceptions and cultural attitudes toward male homoeroticism, like, transformed drastically. This transition and the way, like, academic literature had dealt with it up to that point actually led me in my doctoral research uh, to 
to examine this cultural and social changes that shaped love and eroticism in late 19th and early 20th centuries. Because like, what I, when I started reading about that period, I realized that late 18th century, early 19th century, you can still have more open expressions about boy love like the love and adoration of youthful, beautiful boys, especially in literature. And this was really not that acceptable anymore by mid-19th century. So I was like, what happened? You know, what was the cause? So there was this the shame argument that I encountered at that point, which is something uh, Ottoman historian... Dror Zivi uh, talks about. He's not only talking about homoeroticism, but he says, with the Ottomans becoming aware of the Western perception of their sexual and erotic experiences and expressions, they were ashamed of it. And also... He agrees with Foucault and says, yes, there was an explosion of discourse in Europe. That is true, but that didn't happen in the Middle East. On the contrary, the Middle East silenced its existing discourses of sex and love and eroticism. So this is not only George Zewi, but he just, you know, articulates it very uh, well. And also, I've seen this was a popular argument, like, you know, the Ottomans were ashamed of their homoeroticism, so they silenced it. And they start to kind of, you know, rebuke any expressions of boy love. So it, even if you wanted to write a poetry about that in late 19th century, you would find it difficult. It would, there is a, a, a poet who could, wanted to continue to write classical Ottoman poetry that praises the, the beauty of Mahbub, the male beloved. And this caused a lot of controversy in the literary circles. It was found degenerate, kind of. It was, it was the literary circles didn't appreciate that kind of poetry anymore. So yeah, this, the question was, what happened? Is, that, is the shame argument really enough, right? Like, and how did Ottomans start to feel shame all of a sudden. Like, does it happen like that? You know, you become aware of something and you're ashamed of it. So, I don't know. I try to, I, there is much evidence actually. I was talking about how, you know, they, they felt real ashamed of their European friends reading that kind of classical poetry and stuff. That is true. But there must have something happened that leads to that, right? So, I thought the answer could be in the preceding centuries and how actually male homoeroticism is kind of divorced from its more, from a erotopolitical hierarchy, as I named it in my dissertation, where which is both political and spiritual, right? And the boy beloved is kind of becomes uh, a figure that the poet can talk about as low but also he's talking about his love for the sultan and also for the divine beauty, right? Because this divine beauty finds, finds its reflection in the boy. That kind of a more like spiritual aspect to it was there. 
But as love and sexuality becomes more mundane, so to speak, it is divorced from this aspect. And then it could become an object of shame. Like as it became more mundane and it became more like more worldly and less divine and spiritual. I mean, it was a long process and I'll not get deep into that, but I can just say that it also became a feature of certain subcultures, like the hammam and kahvehane, coffee shops and mehane, taverns. It became a part of this semi-criminal subculture of men and an interesting figure you can, you can also find something like Alan Boone and Rustam Altenai written about him Reshad Ekram is a, a popular historian who talks about Istanbul subculture a lot which is very homoerotic so the attitudes towards boiler or male homoeroticism is an intricate question because it is also shaped by attitudes toward classical Ottoman poetry, which was very much criticized at the time, also because of its literary characteristics. These kind of criticisms were not really taking Ottoman poetry seriously anymore. So it was intermingled with that. So it, they were also intermingled with attitudes towards this kind of semi-criminal Istanbul subcultures. And... Also, of course, an Ottoman past that is tried to be denied by a new heterosexual republic with the foundation of the republic. So the Ottomans were criticized because they were being degenerate, they were being indulgent, you know, like in, in pleasures and stuff, and they kind of degenerated the state and the people and all that. And Boilo in the court, like, or in court poetry was seen as uh, kind of a continuation of this degenerate Ottoman culture. So that was, of course, is always a very politically charged question, right? How you approach like non-conforming genders and sexualities. And of course, in 19th and 20th century, this was like that for uh, the Ottoman, like Ottoman Turkish intellectuals and the founders of the Republic. The next question I wanted to go on to was um, how did relationships between people of the same sex uh, inform late Ottoman and Turkish perspectives on gender identity? It's an, it's an important question. Thank you. Question yeah. I think it also has something to do with all this bigger or wider transformation. Um, as I said, during the late Ottoman Empire, love and marriage became a very much heated topic of debate. So I'll start from something that seems a little bit irrelevant, but I think I will reach to your point, <laughs> I hope. Uh, polygyny, for instance, um, was on the agenda of, of intellectuals from different parts of the political spectrum and also arranged marriages and marrying younger girls with older men were problems identified by the uh, literate middle classes. And, and prose literature was, that was becoming popular while poetry was losing its popularity. So, so prose literature became a field where these problems and the idea of, again, companion marriage, 
is introduced, debated, and discussed. So one of the earliest novels, for instance, is called Taşuku Taşuku Talat ve Fitnat. So it's love and love of um, Talat and Fitnat. So it's, it's about the tragedy that arranged marriages cause. Uh, so the protagonists Talat and Fitnat are in love, uh, but Fitnat's stepfather is a very conservative man, and we understand it because his name is. He's called as a Haji Baba. He's an old man who went to Hajj, Hajj, the pilgrimage. So we understand he's a conservative man from that name. And he doesn't let Fitnat to socialize or like, she's very isolated. And then marries, he marries her off to an old man without her consent. And later this man turns out to be Fitnat's biological father. So this this conservative arranged marriage kind of causes that horrible scenario where you marry your own daughter. And in the end, the lovers die, both of them. One just like Fitnat suicides and Talat sees that and who was already very sick, dies. Well, the interesting part is when Talat is about to die, She's actually named as Ragbe, which is Talat's uh, name in their cross-dresser name. So this is how actually Talat found a way to uh, spend some time with Fitnat. So because she's very secluded, because she cannot go out, Talat decides, oh, okay, I'm going to dress as a woman and I will be become like a, a student of her and we will do embroidery together and you know I'll get to know to her and then Talat meets Fitnat for the first time as Ragbe as a woman and then they become very like very good friends and they they just enjoy their time so much you know so this idea of love and marriage like combining it together could be done through like uh, same-sex friendship, this is how it looks, you know? So, it, like, we're just seeing that, oh, then, you know, they could be friends. Husband and wife can become also good friends like that, like Ragba and... But it is interesting how gender nonconformity is actually becomes an area of, like, negotiating the anxieties aroused by this new idea of romantic love. But here, like in this, in the narrative of Talat and Fitnat, it's not really a story of anxieties aroused by it. But I think that usually the other stories where you have a cross-dressing protagonist, you see that they, this idea is much more laden with anxiety. Anxieties aroused by it, like this, triggered by this process. And you usually have a female assigned person dressed as male. So this was a common theme in folk stories. Uh, a, a female assigned protagonist dressed as a boy, you know, plunges into adventures because that's the only way she can do it or they can do it. Like, because there's gender segregation and, but I mean, also you have it in like European folk stories as well, right? This is a common theme. So when prose literature was introduced or like becoming popular, these folk stories were written down. The earliest novels 
right. so-called novels, were kind of this, you know, folk stories being put down on paper. So there were many narratives of cross-dressing because of that reason. But also, this was later on, this was taken by some more popular novel writers or authors. They, they used this idea uh, of a female assigned person, like dressing as a man and just, you know, having different adventures. It's, you know, it's a trope that is full of excitement and action, right? But it also became a narrative that kind of eased the anxiety of being too much infatuated by a female object of desire. As I said, the one-sex model, the like-seeks-like doctrine was uh, there. So I think a feminine object of desire was triggering this anxiety that just this object of desire might actually make you feminine too. You might start resembling that to that love object, right? This is why I think heteroerotic plots, like romantic love, was triggering a demasculinization uh, or emasculinization. What, was what, what is the way? Emasculinization, right? Right? Yeah, emasculation. This kind of anxiety was triggered by a feminine object of desire. So that is why I think uh, a female assigned protagonist with a male dress, male attitude, a more masculine woman was not really something that was, you know, it was kind of appreciated in the earlier prose literature because it actually kind of eased the anxieties of heterosexual romance, so to speak. But as it progressed into 20th century, like masculine female assigned people were started to be associated with homoeroticism. So this was like the, the figure of an invert was becoming more popular towards mid 20th century. Then a masculine looking woman, it started to be seen as more dangerous. Male assigned people dressing or like, like having feminine gender expression was always problematic, of course. I don't think it's very unique to the Ottoman Turkish culture, right? It is like a, it's misogyny and like the hatred of the feminine expression, gender expression is of course very widespread. So in that sense, I don't think it, it was very exceptional. But also gender nonconformity uh, was not really seen as very much pathological until the sexological terminology and that kind of pathologizing uh, approach was translated in, in 20th century. I find it fascinating what you are saying about masculine presenting women as objects of desire, easing anxieties in men, because yeah, you're right that that doesn't really exist in the same way now at all because of that yeah. assumption of masculinity and women being inherently homosexual. So that is so novel um, and so interesting. And it brings me perfectly to my last question, which was, I mean, compared to compared to the perceptions of gender and sexuality that existed in the Ottoman Empire, what do you think has changed and what remains the same in modern-day Turkey? 
Which is a big question. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it is a big question. And you know, comparisons are always difficult because you, they just force you to make some uh, simplifications in order to find similarities and differences. <laughs> and simplifications also um, inevitably mean emphasizing one attitude or perception for the sake of another. And when we know that they were multiple and diverse. So it's also difficult to speak of the Ottoman Empire as a single social, political, cultural entity. It was geographically vast and lasted for 60, 600 years. And so attitudes and perceptions in the Arabic speaking, for example, 16th, 15th centuries is different from, say, the Balkans in 17th, 18th century. And, also, besides, I hardly consider myself an expert on, like, early modern Ottoman Empire. But a more recent trend, of course, is, uh, like, in Turkey, is this uh, state-sponsored homophobic and transphobic movements and discourses. And, well, they take LGBTI political mobilization as a Western imposition, right? And... So they are, they claim that they are defending national values and local morality and values against this Western intrusion into the Turkish, Muslim Turkish family and values. But again, like, despite being like very local and national, these movements are, of course, part of a global network of anti-gender mobilizations and homophobic movements uh, that I know that you are familiar to. And so slogans such as this, this stop the global war and family uh, or is the uh, gender and gender is a crime against humanity or homosexuality is a crime against humanity are actually global <laughs> slogans. They're very much translated almost literally from other uh, like anti-gender movements in Eastern Europe and in America and like Central Europe and so on. So it's everywhere as you know it. But of course they are very localized. Um, so it was a few years ago in response to this ongoing protests at the Boazic University in Istanbul. Uh, there was these protests were against the uh, against a university rector appointed by Erdogan, who is not from Boazici. It was just, you know, completely undemocratic appointment. And there were also LGBTI students involved in the protest. And then there was a, a, a an art piece that caused a lot of controversy. And somehow all this debate about Boazici University also became a debate about LGBTI movement. And the Minister of Interior declared that, you know, this is something that didn't exist in our, quote-unquote, culture. So the question of Ottoman sexuality, this actually brought the question of Ottoman sexuality to the agenda. And it's, of course, it's a politically charged issue in the context of these discourses, right? Because some respond uh, to ministry, uh, to, to this Minister of Interior uh, by saying... Uh, or showing this obscene miniatures of male uh, same-sex acts and or like the poetry and so on. 
So these miniatures or poems of same-sex acts or like uh, or dedicated to a beloved boy is a, is a perplexing issue for the neo-Ottomanists, right? Uh, this this current government is also, of course, neo-Ottomanist, but it's not only like something that is promoted by the government. It's a a style, also an everyday attitude or a political perspective that reappropriates the cultural history of the Ottomans, and especially uh, before the 19th century and during 19th century, there's this uh, conservative Sultan Abdulhamid II. Like selectively, they reappropriate this culture, and this, and in this process of reappropriation and reevaluation, some elements of social life or cultural narratives are, are of course left out. And the Ottomans are imagined as this ideal, idealized uh, civilization or the past where there is no space for any non-conformative, non-cis-heteronormative desire, experience or attachment or gender expression is a very homogenous history, right? That and it, it seeks to raise not only the differences in erotic experiences or a gender expression, but all religious minorities, geographical differences and temporal differences in different centuries. What, you know, this, this things that I talked about, like that make it difficult to talk about the Ottomans as a single entity. So like, this is what they try to do though. Like the, the now Ottomans discourses, just trying to erase this history of homoeroticism in the Ottoman Empire. But of course, it would be equally wrong to imagine the Ottoman as, an, as a fantasy land of tolerance. Or, like, this is something, uh, this kind of uh, portrayal of the empire is also product of an, an Orientalist, perhaps even a, a homo-Orientalist as Joseph Ellen Boone puts it, representation of the empire in which, you know, homoeroticism was widespread and because of gender segregation and less vicious nature of the Orient in general, I guess. And, and it is perhaps unnecessary to delve into this Orientalist tropes about the Ottoman lands as geographies of alterity and sexual permissiveness, but we can say that it plays a great role in this homoerotic representations of homo-orientalist representations of the empire. Of course, like same sexual relations were considered reprehensible, if not legally criminal by many. I mean, first of all, it was Zina, right? It was not in Islamic law. It was, not in, but not within a marriage, and it was considered as as a crime. Not always persecuted, but it was. And and again, I'm not really an expert, but also there seems to be no legal agreement on like no agreement on how to legally approach same sex relations. As I said, it was not always persecuted. And although there were many depictions of boy love in literature. Most of the time it was supposed to be non-carnal spiritual love. I don't mean that it was always spiritual, as some claim in defense of the Ottomans. Of course, there were carnal relations, and we have evidence of that too. Um, 
yeah, but again, it was something to be, to be avoided, at least in the spiritual kind of poetry. It was, it was you know, always kept at bay, but it was to be, uh, like, the self-discipline should be exercised to avoid it. Another Western-centered argument is about, uh, about that uh, claims that with Westernization, uh, the Ottomans decriminalized homosexuality because, you know, the adoption of the French criminal law, it was no more uh, a, a crime to be, like, legally defined. And Elif Jaylan Osoy uh, published a recent article about how this formulation is also based on the universalization of a Western model. But it also relies on another Orientalist trope, which is the trope of the despotic East, right? Which seems to contradict the first, but as we know, such contradictory tropes and figures coexist in Orientalist discourses. So why I'm talking about these is just because even today, this homo-nationalist approach might see the increasing homophobic movements of the East through that perspective, but that wouldn't be true. I think they should be considered within, uh, in much more in relation, not to Islam or to like Eastern despotism, but this global, like transnational movement of anti-gender populist new right discourses. Yeah, and within that framework, as I said, like uh, the Ottomans as a homogeneous political, social, cultural entity without paying respect to geographical, temporal, or religious differences is also a pitfall that you can find on both sides of the political spectrum. You can find it in neo-denialist kind of neo-Ottomanists or sometimes in LGBTI politics. Sometimes they long for this, you know, non-heteronormative past and romanticize it. But, yeah, what I could say is that it's kind of, you know, these are the pitfalls that we should kind of avoid in approaching. This is incredibly useful. Yeah, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. What I really enjoyed there as well is, is the addressing of the romanticization as well because um, I think that's really important is that in acknowledging these histories um, we don't put them on a pedestal um, especially when you know many of the scenarios that we're talking about um, involved individuals who we would not consider of consenting age now um, but it's so important to also acknowledge how especially that kind of far-right movement is arguing that the ideas that we have about gender and sexuality have always been here um, that the the modern conceptions are the norm um, when, in actual fact, there is you know a, lit a litany of writing out there to prove that our ideas about gender and sexuality now are thoroughly modern and very different to what people used to um, perceive. So yeah, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. I will uh, finish off by asking: Is there Anything else that you want to include? Any misconceptions you want to dispel or anything you want to raise awareness to right now? No, I mean, like maybe I can just add something about what you said. 
Well, of course, we can talk about this, the, the differences, but also there are similarities too. And you can see how in like popular terms or perceptions of gender and sexuality, these ideas kind of still live there. And the everyday knowledge and perception of yeah, sexuality and gender is always an amalgamation of various discourses and this is why it's always so contradictory and this is why always you can find a way out of heteronormative ones to heteronormativity because it's never like coherent right there's always contradictions and, and the, the the remnants of the earlier discourses and narratives are actually one of the things that destabilize the current discourses and narratives i think yeah this is something I, I can add. And I also would like to say, I don't know when this will be released, but I guess still the devastating effects of the earthquake will be there. <laughs> it will be there for a long time, unfortunately, in Turkey. And also LGBTI people, especially trans people, are suffering because they have little access to resources and and help like any kind of solidarity efforts and they are systematically discriminated against already they have been facing many problems but with the earthquake the situation is really dire for all minorities like for i don't know refugees asylum seekers and lgbti people and women so i just wanted to draw attention to that <laughs> It was evident from my conversation with Dr. Saritash that the language of these gendered and sexual practices was crucial in allowing an outsider to better understand this facet of Ottoman culture. If you were listening all the way back in episode 5, when we learned about relationships in Edo period Japan, you'll remember how we learned of how inappropriate homosexuality was as a label for sexual relationships between men during this section of Japanese history. As a Western, 19th century term, homosexuality was both an inaccurate and inappropriate descriptor for relationships between men, where the prefix of homo, denoting sameness, did not reflect the dynamics of these relationships in Japan. In order to better conceive these relationships outside of the ineffective lens of European languages, I decided to bring one more voice into the fold. Um, so my name is Irvin uh, or Ilvin Cemilcik in, in Turkish pronunciation. I was born in Istanbul um, in a long time ago. <laughs> Um, and um, I uh, have taught in the United States and in Turkey. I'm back in the United States now. Um, and um, uh, I've always been very interested in the intersection of, uh, of sexuality and power. Uh, and uh, therefore, I've been very interested in the instrumentalization of sexuality in, in politics. And uh, so I suppose that's, uh, we'll be discussing that in greater detail shortly. Dr. Schick was an informed and enthusiastic voice during the development of this episode, who, on the grounds of this project being an oral histories archive of gender and sexuality diversity, 
initially resisted being interviewed. Schick described himself, quite charmingly, as straight but not narrow. But given that this project requires expertise, sensitivity, and community-led guidance, I was very grateful to have another Turkish voice speak so eloquently on such a delicate and nuanced subject. We started, as I'd hoped, with language, and with Dr. Schick addressing how appropriate the use of homosexuality may or may not be to describe same-sex encounters in Ottoman culture. Well, um, actually, it's not at all appropriate. Um, it's worth remembering that uh, the, the term homosexuality was only coined in the German-speaking domain in the late 1860s. So, in other words, it is quite historically specific. Although it is commonly used nowadays, um, homosexuality is not a trans-historical, geographically universal term. Um, and indeed, in Ottoman culture, although there were very many terms for sexual relations between people of the same sex, there was no single term that applied to both men and women, both active and passive, both young and old. Rather, there was an extremely rich vocabulary that referred to specific roles played by specific people in specific circumstances. Fantastic. That's so fascinating. And obviously, um, opens us up to so many questions, but I'm, I'm going to follow on by what you were saying about the vocabulary um, and ask you, how does Ottoman language for sexual and gendered roles vary from English language conceptualizations? Well, for example, um, there are different words for a mature man who penetrates, a mature man who is penetrated, uh, and a young boy who is penetrated. In other words, the terms are age and role differentiated. Um, and this is uh, a very important feature of the sexual vocabulary that does not, or perhaps no longer does, I'm not sure, exist in English. Um, of course, in gay slang, you will find terms like top, bottom, versatile, you know, son, daddy, and so forth. But this is community-specific slang. Uh, mainstream English today does not have, as far as I know, nuanced terms similar to those in, in Arabic, in Persian, and, of course, in, in Ottoman. And this suggests that sexual relations were not conceptualized along the lines of homosexual versus heterosexual. Um, a man who penetrated a man and a man who was, was penetrated by a man were conceptualized as differently sexed rather than as just two participants in a single common homosexual experience. And th I think that's a very, very fundamental difference. Yeah, that's huge. Um, and it does actually bring up some of, of what I was reading in your work regarding that, that age differentiation, that role differentiation, because of course you've previously written about uh, Ottoman culture having had these, am I right in thinking, distinctly three different genders? Um, so men, women, and boys. I wanted to ask about that. Why do you think this distinction was created between men and boys, but not women and girls? Well, I mean, you have to remember that um, Gender relations were not symmetrical in Ottoman society. Uh, small children of both sexes were by and large considered genderless until they reached a certain age. 
But once they became gendered by virtue of age, they lived very, very different lives. Um, in particular, uh, female access to public space was limited and very carefully controlled, and sexual relations out of wedlock were not socially sanctioned in the case of women. Um, now, as you know, um, gender, of course, is not something you are born with. It is attributed by society in the form of behavior and status and functions and so forth. And in that sense, as girls grew up to be women, and in that process uh, certainly did acquire a greater authority, um, no fundamental change occurred in their place within society. Perhaps we can qualify that statement a little bit by pointing out that women once again became genderless as they aged out of their reproductive years. Um, in her book on the Ottoman imperial harem, Leslie Pierce showed how generation could sometimes trump gender, so that old women often exercised considerable authority over the young men in their household. But I wouldn't go as far as claiming that this was a gender change. Um, women uh, did not, uh, uh, in, in many ways, uh, for example, well, let me give you another example. Um, uh, as a well, boys cry, right? As they grow up to become men, they're not supposed to cry anymore. There are certain very fundamental uh, changes that are expected of of male uh, individuals as they grow up. Um, that is not the case uh, with with uh, female individuals. And so, in that sense, the 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 gender of the female person uh, does not change as appreciably as. Uh, as the one for, for um, in, in the case of a male individual. That's incredible. <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating, um, especially the idea of aging out of the gender. Um, that's so far from what I've done in research, I haven't come across that before. So that's incredible. Um, so to bring a slightly more um, contemporary perspective um, into this, with regards to the very much English language concept of uh, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny. How and why do perspectives on gender and sexuality in contemporary Turkish culture um, vary compared to Ottoman perspectives? Um, well, uh, misogyny was always there and remains alive and well um, in Turkey today. So we can set that aside. Um, but as for homophobia, um, I don't want to suggest, of course, that Ottoman society was a permissive paradise. Um, but while sensuous and worldly pursuits of all kinds were certainly frowned upon, in contrast to abstinence and piety and devotion, a specifically negative attitude was limited to um, adult men who were, pen who were penetrated. Um, you know, that was uh, a... Um, uh, uh, in, infavorably viewed because that was viewed as a as transgressive of accepted roles. Um, but as long as the adult man was the penetrator, uh, whom he penetrated was viewed as basically a matter of personal taste. Um, and uh, the homophobia that currently exists in Turkey is the result of two separate but related factors. Um, the arrival and consolidation of European heteronormativity during the 19th century, and the amoral, cynical instrumentalization of sexuality and of otherness of every variety, actually, 
by the present government in, in, in an effort to drum up political support as they face economic ruin. Uh, and, um, of course, with the, with the uh, earthquake, uh, I'm sure that ruin will be um, even accelerated. Now, transphobia is a very different issue. Um, for example, uh, in Ottoman society, cross-dressing was a serious problem, um, with the huge exception of the entertainment sector. Because there, as in many other pre- and early modern societies, you wear what you wore. Um, for a Muslim to dress like a Christian or for a man to dress like a woman, these were severely uh, punishable transgressions of social norms. Um, today, uh, of course, things are different. Um, you know, your, your attire is no longer that important. But many men who view themselves as quote-unquote straight patronize trans sex workers in, in Turkey, especially in a city like Istanbul. And the violence that they frequently visit upon them uh, is, I believe, nothing more than a projection of the self-hatred that society's hypocrisy induces in them. Um, when society hates who you are, you may come to hate yourself too. Um, and uh, one way of dealing with that hatred is to beat other people up. So um, I think a lot of transphobia is, is, uh, is due to uh, this pressure uh, on men who patronize trans, uh, trans sex workers uh, on the part of society. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, wow. Thank you so much for this. Um, before we stop recording, is there anything else that you want to share as part of this to dispel any rumors or address any misconceptions about what you study? Well, uh, for, for people who are um, uh, not following, you know, what's going on in Turkey very closely, um, uh, I should mention that uh, the current government and especially the Minister of the Interior, uh, Suleyman Soylu, have made um, anti-LGBT a, a big issue. Um, and they, and, uh, they have uh, been cited in the press as saying things like uh, they will make, uh, uh, you know, uh, homosexuals of all of us, or they want to make us into homosexuals and other such nonsensical statements. Um, now, I very much doubt that they believe what they are saying. I think that, uh, as I said, that this is a very cynical ploy um, to essentially mobilize part of society against another part in order to, to create common enemies and gain support. Um, and in this, in this uh, respect, I think that the LGBT community in Turkey really needs support uh, from the world. Um, and the world should be aware. I mean, we are all aware of what's been going on in Uganda and, and in, in uh, you know, uh, Poland and so forth. I don't think Turkey has been getting quite as much coverage in, in this respect. And it would be good for people to be aware uh, that there is a, a lot of pressure building up on the LGBT community in Turkey. Um, and um, once uh, you start uh, creating enemies, where that will end is, is never quite clear. Uh, so, so this is something that I think deserves um, you know, some, some degree of attention. Dr. Schick's closing statements, addressing the ill-informed conceptualization of common enemies to bolster political power within the Turkish government, drawn not insignificant parallels with other sites of political contestation in Turkey. In both Turkey and Malta, I made connections with members of the Kurdish community, a large, predominantly Muslim ethnic group. 
Half of all 30 million Kurds are estimated to live in Turkey. And this residency is contingent on an assimilation of Kurds into Turkish identity. One of the Kurdish associates I made explained to me how Kurdish names were banned for a period of the 20th century in Turkey. And even now, this individual does not have any formal travel documentation with their Kurdish name on it. Educational instruction in the Kurdish language is banned in Turkish schools. And alongside this censoring of Kurdish culture, a significant social taboo around Kurdish identity persists. I also met a young Kurdish woman who told me that, given her experiences, she was more hesitant to tell me that she was Kurdish than to tell me that she was a lesbian. Between the experiences of the LGBTQ community in Turkey and the persecution of the Kurdish community, it seems apparent that what it means to be Turkish, according to the current Turkish government, may very much be contingent on a cultural homogenization the ignoring or even destruction of communities whose existence does not align with predetermined Turkish values. To be Turkish, or even to be safe in Turkey, requires existing within a definition so narrowed we must ask the question, at what point does the narrowing stop? And which vulnerable groups may become the next state-endorsed common enemy? In The Transformation of Turkey by sociologist Fatma Mugay Gocek, Gocek writes on the subject of the mistreatment of the Armenian people by the Turks throughout and following their many decades of conflict. On this subject, she states that it is evident that the Turkish state's conception of just people needs to be challenged by the community of independent scholars, and that challenge is underway. The question of what makes a person just is at the core of the debate around cultural preservation versus progressivism. Very often, the people of a country, its politicians, business people, and general citizens, may calibrate their morality and justify their actions around the cultural values of a bygone era of their country, an era often historically whitewashed and easier to romanticize. But the roots of homophobia, transphobia, and queerphobia in Turkey, at least as we recognize these concepts in the modern age, cannot be explained through the preservation of the cultural values of the Ottoman Empire. For many Turks, this history has, at least in the formal sense, been inaccessible through, we may speculate, educational blockades or cultural taboo. Undoubtedly, values can be passed through generations of families without a more academic understanding of their origins. But the resistance of xenophobia in Turkey is a matter reaching far beyond the importance of from where these hostilities sprung. As Gocek states, scholars are well positioned to challenge the norms around what is just behavior when it comes to those around us most vulnerable to harm and ostracism. But there is so much that can be done, outside of the seat of academia, to take knowledge of the history of Turkey and utilize it to explain how easily, radically, a country's practices and values can change 
when the cause is just. The cultural pathway that tracks from Ottomans to Turks is a complex one. The shift between the values of the two, not unremarkable, but it is a history that demonstrates how a society can choose the face they present to the world. And, when revolutionary action necessitates it, that face can be radically changed for the better. There is much in Turkey's rich history that, in its proliferation, could benefit not only the movement seeking to protect the LGBTQ plus Turkish community, but a host of communities at risk of discrimination and dehumanization. In recognizing the shifts in power dynamics between genders, sexualities, and even racial and ethnic groups throughout history, we very often begin to see repeating themes. But not just in Turkey, but throughout much of the recorded world, Enemies of society are conceptualized for the sake of blaming discord and disharmony upon an othered group. And, as Dr. Schick stated, once you start creating enemies, where that will end is never quite clear. The parallels evident between the treatment of ethnic, gendered, and sexual minorities in Turkey are impossible to ignore. Justice for the marginalized people of Turkey is an abstract concept still. And the crisis following the earthquake which rocked this country earlier this year will almost certainly slow down this necessary progress. But the fight is far from over. And perhaps with the global support called for by voices inside the Turkish community, hope for an inclusive Turkey may remain even now in reach. This episode of the Slash Queer podcast was edited by Dan Stubbs, transcribed by Bronya Smith, co-scripted by myself and Taha Ateist, and produced and hosted, as always, by me, Georgie Williams. A very special thanks to Dr. Irvin Schick and Dr. Eski Sarutash for their insightful and informative contributions to this episode. Many thanks also to Tony Walsh for his support and accommodation during our time in Antalya. Many thanks also to our fantastic Patreon subscribers. Your contributions are now fully supporting the upkeep of our website and helping with the payments for some of the software we use, which makes a huge difference. This month, all of our Patreon donations are being donated to the British Red Cross Turkey Syria Earthquake Appeal. That means all donors, new and old, will be directly supporting the continued efforts to manage the impact of the Turkey-Syria crisis. If you aren't a patron and wish to sign up to make a small donation each month, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash slash queer. That's S-L-A-S-H queer. You can also find our slash queer merchandise on Threadless, including our brilliant new Mothman queer icon shirt referencing one of our favourite outtakes from earlier this season. Half of all profits go directly to artist and former interviewee, Elika Flynn. We are also still accepting donations via coffee. The links to all of the above are in the description for this episode. This episode was recorded on location in Turkey and virtually between South Africa and Boston, USA. 
Music in this episode was composed by our resident audio king, Sam Clay. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback, please get in touch on Instagram or Twitter at, at @slashqueer or email us at info@slashqueer.com. Until you join us next, stay kind, stay radical, and stay queer. <laughs>